0: this morning I want to start off by asking, what are some of the most important questions that you will ever face in life? I think when you're a little kid, probably the most important question is, what do you want to be when you grow up? We always give fun answers when we're younger, but as you get older, that's something you really had better figure out, because how you answer that is going to shape your life forever. As you get older, probably the next most important question is, will you marry me? I think we all can agree. That how you answer that question is going to alter your life like no other. And that's one you had better get right and with the right person. I think there's bigger questions than these. We could get spiritual and ask, do you believe in God? That's a decisive question that splits people into two groups, yes and no. Believe it or not, most people still believe, yes, that there is a God. So the real question becomes, well, what God do you believe in? And among the 7 billion people on the planet, there's by no means a single answer to that question. That's a huge one, though, that will shape your life, depending on how you answer that. Still, there's another question that cuts through the rest, both in importance and in separating people according to their worldview. And that question has to do with Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? What do you make of him? No doubt there have been many answers to that question down through the centuries, and they've all been controversial. Blood has even been shed over this question. People have died over their answer to that question. Sounds serious, and it is. And most likely you're already familiar with how orthodox Christianity would answer that question. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He's fully man, yet fully God came to save. He's the Jewish Messiah, but also the divine Savior of the whole world. But not everyone would agree with that standard answer in fact most people would not seems like everyone has their own two cents about who jesus is and seemingly no two major worldviews agree i give you some examples buddhists believe that jesus was just a man but he was a supremely wise and enlightened man he taught many things similar to buddha and he shows the way of enlightenment hindus believe that jesus was a god an incarnation of god Hindus say that the teenage Jesus traveled across Southeast Asia learning yogic traditions and he returned home to be a guru to the Jews. When Jesus proclaimed, I and the Father are one, he confirmed the Hindu idea that through rigorous spiritual practice, people can attain their own sense of God consciousness. Muslims believe that Jesus was not the Son of God, but he was a great prophet. In fact, he's the greatest surpassed only by Muhammad. He's God's messenger. They believe Jesus came to reveal God's will, but he didn't really die on the cross. He only appeared to have died. According to Scientology mumbo-jumbo, Jesus is classified below the level of operating thetan, but a shade above the Scientology state of clear, whatever that's supposed to mean. He's part of their heritage. He's considered a good teacher, but... At the same time, this whole idea that Jesus is God, they call it a fiction that must be removed through what they call auditing. Christian scientists believe Jesus was just a man, but he's the highest concept of the divine idea, which just means he's the closest thing to God that that there is. He did not really die on the cross, they say, but he did overcome all human suffering. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is not God. He is, though, God's first and chief creation, Jesus, before he came to earth, he existed in the form of the archangel Michael, and God through him created the world. And the Mormons, they believe that Jesus was with God and that he is a God, but he's not the only God, nor is God the Father the only God. All can become gods. They would add that Jesus and Satan are brothers. They are both the sons of God, but one rebelled, one didn't. You can figure that one out. And, of course, we can throw on the view of atheists and skeptics that Jesus may or may not even have really existed. Who knows if he was even a real person? He, he could just be a fiction of history. And if he did exist, well, he was a Jewish teacher. He came became popular somehow, but he definitely wasn't divine, and he didn't do any miracles because that's not possible. And we could go on, but you get the point. There's a vast diversity of opinion regarding who Jesus was. And it's very divisive. And you could say... Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, and I guess that's true. It certainly is today, but clearly not everyone can be right. These all can't be right at the same time. One is right, and the others, the others are all wrong, just how it has to be. So the question we ask is, well, which, which one is it? And to me, what, one of the things that's so telling about all these worldviews is that they all base their view of Jesus on anything and everything but the one source of information, about Jesus, namely the Bible. None of these views derive their beliefs about Jesus from the one document you could say written to tell us specifically about Jesus. Now, what does that tell you? Is that kind of a red flag to you? What, what do you make of a view that throws out the primary source and just goes by, by hearsay? It would be like in a murder trial if the suspect, they had him on film committing the crime. It's on tape, but the jury the, the judge throws out the tape and the the, ju- the jury just goes by hearsay, they let the suspect go free. That that'd be crazy. But that's what people do. And for me at least, I, I don't I don't care so much what people think. I'm not interested in, in hearsay or opinion or the, the next idea. I just want to know what does God's word say. I want to hear from the primary source. What does God have to say about who Jesus is? Now we know of course the other worldviews they don't they don't buy that. They don't even believe the Bible is God's word in the first place. And again, that's their prerogative. That's not something we can make them believe. We have come to know and understand the Bible is God's word, but we don't have the power to make someone believe that. That's not even our mission. But we can testify. And that is our mission. That is something we must do to provide a testimony, a clear testimony coming from Scripture as to what God does say about Jesus That's something we want to do this morning. Our goal this morning, our goal every morning, but today especially, is to testify that contrary to all of these worldviews, Scripture presents Jesus very clearly as the Christ and the Son of God. And that is who he is. And we want to see this firsthand. You can open your Bibles now to Mark chapter 8. Open your Bibles or grab one from the pew. Mark chapter 8 this morning. Here at the end of Mark chapter 8 we're finally breaching really the most significant passage in Mark's gospel though, this far. After Mark begins his gospel, he really fast forwards through most of the first year of Christ's ministry. Barely anything from year 1. He jumps us almost right to year 2, which takes place in Galilee, that region to the north. Jesus travels and ministers in Galilee. But around the time of the feeding of the 4000, that took place at the beginning of Mark chapter 8, we turned another corner, and now we're in the third ministry, the third year of Christ's ministry, the third and final year. This in Mark it brings us to the halfway point of Mark's gospel. Now we know where the story ends. It's no surprise to us that the story ends with Jesus dying on the cross. I think we all, I trust, know that. But at what point does Jesus stop traveling around as this like itinerant preacher, and when does this whole saga of the cross begin? And the answer is pretty much right here at the end of Mark chapter 8. From here on out, Jesus will be leading his disciples on a slow march to Jerusalem where he's going to die. And really, there's not that many stops in between. We see in Mark chapters 9 and 10, Mark records some more teaching of Jesus, a few more miracles. But you get to chapter 11 and there you are, triumphal entry in Jerusalem. And the last six chapters are all focused on his last week of life, which tells you something, doesn't it, about how important that week was. But in all of this, the passage we have today at the end of Mark chapter 8, it's the hinge of Mark's gospel. They fold right here. This is the turning point of the entire gospel. After this, there's a real change in tone and orientation. Before this point, in the first half, Jesus never told his disciples, never told anyone, that he has to die and rise again. Never mentioned that. But after this point, he tells them often. Well, they, don't, they don't get it. We'll see that in the weeks to come, but thats this has all changed. In the first half, the tone, it's, it's almost uplifting, triumphant. It's going to be a glorious ministry. But now, after this turning point, the tone of his ministry in his final days, it, it's dark, it's gloomy, it's like a death march. And we know how that story ends. But the point is, Mark 8, what we have right here, this is the turning point. Nothing compares in importance to, to the cross, to the resurrection. That's like Mount Everest. We know that. But that would make Mark chapter 8 like base camp. This is where we are preparing for our ascent up the mountain to the cross where the story ends. Jesus, he's setting his disciples straight, getting it all on record, preparing them for the road ahead because it's going to be hard. And one day it will be their road too word of suffering. And so what we find in this critical hinge passage, he's just setting the record straight on three things. His identity, his mission, and what it means for you. What it means for disciples, who he is and what he came to do. And so that's why it's such a critical passage that over the next three weeks, we're going to break this down. This final section ranges from verse 27 down to the end of the chapter, verse 38. And he covers those three special Topics, who he is, his identity, what he came to do, his, his real mission, and then what it means for you. You're going to follow him? What does that mean? The impact. And we want to give a, a full week's worth of attention to each of these three huge issues. That's what we're going to do. That means, of course, that today we begin with entirely the identity of Jesus, which is primary concern. Who is he? You can't get his mission right unless you get his identity right. We've got to figure that out, and we're going to see the testimony today. It's found in verses 27 through 30. That's what we're going to cover today. And so why don't we get started by by reading this passage, picking up where we left off last time, Mark chapter 8, and read along with me starting at verse 27. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples saying to them, who do people say that I am? They told him saying John the Baptist and others say Elijah, others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them. To tell no one about him. And we want to spend more time with this passage, of course. I want you both to see how pivotal this is in Mark's gospel. But also, I want you yourself to behold the testimony from Scripture as to who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. We want to see this ourselves. There is no more important question that you will face than who is Jesus. Who do you make him out to be? And we desperately want to get that right. I want to know, what does the word say? And we're going to find out. So let's go through this passage again, give you a little descriptive outline to follow along if you wish. Let's start with this. Number one, a providential journey. Starting in verse 27, you can follow along. A providential journey. Look there again. We see that Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So it's a new setting. Previously, Jesus and the Twelve, they were traveling around, and they last stopped, last we found them, they're in this little town of, called Bethsaida. It's on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, right where the Jordan River just dumps into the lake. That's where this town is, Bethsaida. But that wasn't their final destination. That was just a layover. They're on a, a greater trip north. And the reason for the trip is that Jesus, he's done with the crowds. He's not seeking any more attention. He's trying to escape the crowds, and just get some alone time with his 12 so that they're going north where there's not as many Jews. And this time, instead of going up the coast, they're going to follow the Jordan River 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. That's where it is, on the river 25 miles north. And this city, Caesarea Philippi, it was a beautiful city. It was renowned for its beauty, its splendor, its fertility, just a lush place. It's located on the southern slope of Mount Hermon. And it has an amazing landmark, a natural landmark there, this huge cavern. And inside the cavern, there's a huge natural spring, just water coming from the ground. And that's one of the major springs that feeds the Jordan River. This is one of the sources of the Jordan. Now, of course, over time, this cave became a pagan shrine to the Greek god Pan. You've heard of Pan. He's like a half-man, half-goat, god of the wild. And so needless to say, this city, Caesarea Philippi, had a huge pagan character to it. This was a pagan stronghold and only made things worse when the Romans came because they attached emperor worship to Caesarea Philippi. Herod the Great built this magnificent temple there in honor of Emperor Augustus. And later Herod's son Philip, he enlarged the temple and he rededicated the whole city to Tiberius Caesar and he named it Caesarea in honor of Tiberius Caesar. But there's another Caesarea at the time on the coast, so dis- to distinguish it, he called it Caesarea Philippi because his name's Philip. So it means Caesarea, Philip Caesarea, like the one of Philip. It's his Caesarea. and it became his capital city. Well, the point is this, this city, this town, it was a huge pagan stronghold and a Roman stronghold, Technically, though, it was still in Israel. This is still part of the Holy Land. But this was, this was about as far north as you could go and still be in Israel. This is like the upper limit at the time of the Holy Land. But that being said, by, by this day, by Christ's day, there's really nothing holy going on in Caesarea Philippi. This is a very pagan place, which kind of makes us wonder, so why, why is Jesus going there? Why would he go to a place like that? Now, the text itself doesn't say he entered the actual city. He went to the surrounding villages. And we know he didn't come to minister to this city. He's not on a mission trip to reach them. He doesn't talk to them. He's here to to escape the the crowds in Galilee and get alone with his 12 because he's not going to be recognized so much there. And that was the case. But still, it may be telling that Jesus, he chose this pagan stronghold as the unlikely place for this critical confession of his identity as the Christ. It makes us wonder, maybe, just maybe, he chose this location for this confession as a picture of just how far off mainstream Judaism had become. This was the furthest location from Jerusalem. That was still technically in Israel. And maybe it serves as a picture, we could say. Of that's, that's how far you have to get away from the teachings of, of Jerusalem to find the real Christ. And that certainly was the case. But we know for certain, though, that he was there to spend time with the 12. He's training them. He's preparing them for the road ahead. They're on the final stretch. From here, it's a winding course to Jerusalem, and he dies. So this is go time with the 12. This is key preparation time, and that's his primary goal with them. And we see him expand upon that now, teaching them through some questioning. He starts to question them near Caesarea Philippi. We find, secondly, uh, a probing question. Uh, Secondly, a probing question. Look again at verse 27. Again, it says, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? So we learn from Matthew, they're pretty close to Caesarea, and on the way, Jesus questions them. He's like, hey, so what do people think about me? What's the word on the streets concerning Jesus? That Does he have favorable ratings in the latest poll? What, what does the common man say? Literally, what do the men say? What's the view of the commoner? I'm not sure if you have picked up on it, but throughout Mark's Gospel, there's been this huge theme about the identity of Jesus, the true identity of Jesus. As you open up Mark's gospel in the first verse, you're left with no surprises. If you remember Mark chapter 1, verse 1, how does he open the whole book? He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So there it is. He's telling you his identity. Who is he? He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. There's no surprises. He's the divine Messiah. So you start off Mark's gospel. Just picture you're a Roman you're a Christian in Rome in the early church, and this is the first time you're reading this and hearing about Jesus. First time. So you open up the book, and first verse, you okay, he's the Christ, he's the Son of God. You know his identity. But then as you read the rest of the book, you watch the story unfold, you see all of the human characters, and nobody gets it. None of them get that fact that he's the Christ and the Son of God. In fact, by this point in Mark's Gospel, We've seen no human confess that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. He's nearing the end of his ministry, and people—nobody gets it fully—who he is. And now that's not good. That's got to change. Now, of course, we hear from other people about who Jesus is. We hear from God. God knows who Jesus is. And in Mark chapter one, the baptism of Jesus, God says, "This is my beloved Son. He's the Son of God." So God knows. And furthermore, we hear several times from, from demons. When Jesus encounters them, even though they're rebellious angels, nonetheless, they're compelled and forced to bow down and say, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. So they know who he is, but the humans in the story, they, they don't get it. We do hear what they think, though, but they get it wrong. We hear about the religious leaders. What do the religious leaders of Israel think about the identity of Jesus? Well, they think Jesus is demon-possessed. Remember that? Jesus so opposed their teaching, he so called out their hypocrisy that, that they hated him. And so as we learned back in Mark chapter 3, they made him out to be more like Satan incarnate than God incarnate. And they thought to themselves, I mean, look at this guy. He eats and drinks with sinners and tax collectors. He violates our rules and traditions. There's no way he can be the Messiah Messiah's not going to do this, right? So they hated him, and they they thought he was anything but the Messiah. That's the religious leaders. and the testimony of Christ's identity, is not much better coming from his own family members. We learn also in Mark chapter 3 that his brothers, all of his half-brothers, they thought that he was not the Messiah, but he's just out of his mind. Like our brother, he's just a religious fanatic. He's going to get himself killed over this whole Messiah thing. The testimony from his own hometown is, again, no better, Nazareth, where he grew up. What did they think about Jesus? They thought that Jesus was no one, meaning he's nobody special. He's just a Nazarene, which means you're nobody. It's like a hick town, a small hick town. Like you're, If you're from Nazareth, you're just a nobody. They're like, Jesus, we know you. You're one of us. Despite your you know celebrity status, we know who you are. You're just that son of a carpenter. You're, you're nobody. So this is what we see. All these human characters, It's what they think about Jesus. And you can see this, this thread being woven throughout Mark's gospel about his identity. Mark has on purpose recorded this contrast between the heavenly view of Jesus, which is correct, and the earthly view of Jesus so far. But now, now it's time to set that record straight. A lot of people have been wondering. We find in Mark chapter 6, Herod Antipas, he's wondering, like, who is this Jesus? Who is he? We find the disciples wondering. After Jesus stilled the storm, they all sit there and they wonder, like, who is this? That even the wind and the seas obey him. So They're wondering, like, who really is this guy? And now it's time to find out. But before Jesus asked the disciples how they answer that question themselves, he asked them first, you know, what do people say? What's the common man say? We've heard about the religious leaders. We've heard about his hometown. What's the word on the streets about who Jesus is? And so we find out next. We find, thirdly, a popular answer. This is what the people think, a popular answer. We find in verse 28 their response. The disciples pipe up and they, they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets, so as it turns out, the view of the common man, Jesus had some favorable ratings in the polls. These were, relatively speaking, good views. They esteemed him highly. They didn't hate him. They thought he was someone good. We saw we by learning that some people thought he was John the Baptist. If you remember back in Mark chapter 6, we learned what happened to John the Baptist. He was beheaded by Herod Antipas. But somehow this rumor started that John had risen from the dead. And remember, everyone highly regarded John as a true prophet. That's a big deal, because there had not been a recognized prophet in Israel for over 400 years. But John, did he ever perform signs and wonders? He never did. Never did. But if John had come back from the dead, that would explain all of the supernatural works that Jesus was performing. That's what they reasoned, because here's Jesus, and he's doing supernatural, and they didn't doubt that. But they had to try and explain it, and so like, maybe it's John back from the dead. In fact, this, as crazy as that sounds, that's the actual, the official view of Herod. That's what he thought. He thought John, whom he had beheaded, had come back to haunt him, so to speak, because he was very guilty over that execution. So amazingly, this rumor persisted, and it spread among the people, and so now a chunk of the Israelites, they really think Jesus is John the Baptist back from the dead. That's pretty interesting. Another major view was that Jesus was Elijah. They say. Now Elijah, you, you might remember, is one of the most renowned prophets from the Old Testament, and it was common knowledge. Every Jew would have known this: that Elijah was going to return. Everyone knew that he's going to come back. Why they believe that? Well, for two reasons. One is that because Elijah never died. He's one of only two people with Enoch who were taken directly to heaven. He never died on earth. And so they thought he would come back directly from heaven, finish the job. And secondly, the final two verses in the Old Testament, the end of Malachi, predict that Elijah will return. For example, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, God says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So this is why all of the Jews, they all believed Elijah is going to come back directly from heaven in the days of the Messiah and he's going to prepare the way. And they looked at Jesus and here Jesus, he's doing the works of heaven. And so some people thought, well, I guess he must be Elijah. Because how else do you explain these supernatural works? There's a third group. They don't really buy that he's John back from the dead. They don't buy that he's Elijah. But they still think highly of Jesus. He's a prophet. They think he's a real, genuine prophet. He may even be the prophet. There's a key prophecy in the Old Testament where God promised to raise up a prophet like Moses who will perfectly lead the people. And one way or another, this this majority of people thought, he, he's, he's a real prophet, at the very least. He's a man of God. He speaks from God. So together, though, this is the word on the streets. Who, who is Jesus? Well, John the Baptist or Elijah or your prophet. Now, there are some good things we can say about these views of the common people. First, they thought Jesus was special. I'm not, that's a good thing. They thought he was special. He wasn't just ordinary. He's not an average guy. I mean, look, if you ask that question, if you ask your friends, like, hey, who do people say that I am? They're like, what do you mean? Like, you're just you're just plain old you. You're, you're just you. You're not that special. Maybe you shouldn't ask your friends that question. But Jesus, he understood, and the people understood. He, he's not normal. Nobody thought Jesus was just plain old Jesus, except maybe Nazareth. But they understood. He's someone special. He's someone out of the ordinary. Like Nicodemus said when he came up to Jesus, we know you are from God because no one can do the works that you do unless God is with him." Just people widely believed there's something special about Jesus. Secondly, they believed he spoke for God. He was a true representative. That, that's significant. Again, it's been 400 years since there's been a prophet in Israel. Now we've got John the Baptist. We've got Jesus. It's like God is speaking again, and he was. And then thirdly, the people gathered that there was something supernatural about Jesus. They understood that. Not only is just not normal, but he's, there's something supernatural going on here. He performs these signs, these wonders, these healings, and nobody doubted them. The Pharisees, it was so clear, they couldn't doubt the miracles, they just ascribed them to Satan, like these are demon-inspired miracles. But the people didn't really buy that. And it's like, no, that's not true, because look how good Jesus is. He says good things. He does good things. They didn't buy the whole demon issue. So they said, well, maybe he's just John back from the dead, or maybe he's Elijah from heaven. That's how we explain the supernatural. But they did associate something Divine with him. So we can say that there are some relatively good things about what the people were saying about Jesus, but that being said, they're all still wrong. They're wrong. All of these views fall short. And why is that? It's because all of these views, they still left Jesus in the category of forerunner, not fulfillment. Elijah was supposed to be a forerunner to the Messiah. John was supposed to be a forerunner to the Messiah. In fact, every prophet technically is a forerunner to the Messiah. And they all pegged Jesus in that same category. You're you're a forerunner. You're not the guy. You're You're not the consummation. You're not the fulfillment of all these prophecies. You're just a forerunner. And what's the one word missing from the people's views of Jesus? Messiah. The whole point is, as great as they thought he was, none of them were saying that he was the Christ or the Messiah. They thought highly of him, but not high enough. And these Jews were failing to see their own Messiah. And if you're like me, it makes you wonder, you know, what's up with that? How did they miss him? How did they not put together, at least some people put together that he was the Messiah? You look at his teaching, you look at his works, the wonders, it, just, it seems so obvious. Fulfillment of prophecy, it's like, well, no, doubt he's the Messiah. So how did they miss it? It's important, I think, we just pause for a minute and explain, and I want you to understand why the people did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And the primary reason is because Jesus did not do what the Messiah was supposed to do in their eyes. Jesus did not meet their expectations of the Messiah. If you asked any first century Jew, who's the Messiah going to be? What's he going to do when he comes? they'd all give you the same answer. The Messiah will be a political and military leader like King David, descended from King David. He will lead Israel in battle. He will overthrow her enemies. He will make Israel the greatest nation on the planet. He will bring in everlasting peace. Messiah will regather and restore Israel to prominence. He will be the righteous judge of the world. And so in the days of Jesus, that put a huge target on Rome. Because in that day, the Jews, they were conquered and oppressed by Rome. But the Messiah would change all of that. He would break those chains. He would free Israel. And he would make them the nation of all nations. That's what they all thought. And that's why so many people had such a hard time believing Jesus was that Messiah, because that's that's not his mission. That's not what he was doing. He wasn't even interested in this. He had no concern with trying to free Israel from their chains. He had no concern with military might. In fact, Jesus he even told people to submit to Rome and pay taxes. They're like, there's no way that can be the Messiah telling us to pay taxes to Rome. Like, there's no way. How on earth could he be the Messiah? He's not a conquering king. So this is what the people thought. He's great. His healings are great. But he just can't be the Messiah because where is the kingdom? Where is Israel's restoration? This just can't be. So he's got to be a forerunner. I guess he's another forerunner. John, Elijah, prophet, whatever. This is the voice of the people on the streets. Now, at the end of the day, do you really think that Jesus cares that much about the popular opinion of himself? He doesn't. What he really cares about is what his 12 say. What do they say? And we're going to find out. It's time to get personal with them. This leads to number four, a personal question. Fourthly here, a personal question. Verse 29, he continued by questioning them. But who do you say that I am? This is a very personal and emphatic question for the 12. He says, it's in the plural. He says, but you, you guys... What do you say about me? Who do you say that I am? They had been with Jesus longer. They had seen more of his works. They had seen more of his miracles. They had the inside scoop on Jesus. So did they get it? Had they put it together? And they had better soon because he's going to head to Jerusalem to die. And and they need to be on board with that mission. They too are going to have a very difficult road ahead. There's no way they're going to endure that road. If they don't have the identity of Jesus crystallized in their mind, verbalized by their mouth, and cherished in their heart. They have to get him right. And time, time's running out. The whole population has failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So, so what about them? It's, it's all on their shoulders now. It's time for them to decide. Jesus has never questioned them like this before. He's never pressed them it's like, hey, what do you guys think? What's it going to be? He hasn't done this yet. But now it's time for them to publicly declare their belief about Jesus and that's what they do. Number five, a pivotal confession. We find really, fifthly, a pivotal confession. Peter pipes up and answered and said to him, verse 29 You are the Christ. So finally, after many years and eight long chapters, they say it, they get it right. You're the Christ. Peter speaks up. He's representative of the 12. He's voicing their whole opinion. He says, you are the Christ. The word Christ, it's not a, it's not a name. It's a title. It means the anointed one. And back in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil to signify that God had chosen them as his servants for this job. It was later foreseen that God, he would provide an ultimate anointed one, an ultimate Messiah. That's the translation of the word anointed one who would save his people. And it was then this Messiah, this Christ, that became the key title for Israel's Savior. This is going to be the one who would redeem them from bondage, who would save the people, restore Israel. And so Peter and the disciples, they're confessing that Jesus, that's you. You are that Redeemer. You are the ultimate anointed one. You're the servant of God who's going to redeem Israel. This was a big step for the disciples. We take this for granted because we're so used to calling Jesus Christ that we think it's his last name. It's not his last name. It's just a title. But for them, this was a, a leap. I want you to to see this a little bit better. I want to give you a little more background so you can really catch the weight of this confession, how pivotal this was for the disciples. Now, I want to ask you this question. Is this the first time that the disciples had realized or said that Jesus was the Christ? Is this the first time? The answer to that question is no. It's not the first time. Let me explain. This is the first time recorded in Mark's gospel that they are confessing Jesus as the Christ. And Mark keeps it that way on purpose because this is a pivotal moment, and we'll talk about that shortly. But the disciples, they had already thought that Jesus was the Christ and the Son of God before this starts with John the Baptist. Right when Christ's ministry begins, John's still there. He's ministering. And John himself testifies about who Jesus is. And we hear it captured in John chapter 1, verse 34, where John says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So right away, John chapter 1, there's a confession early that Jesus is the Son of God. Andrew, you know, one of the 12 disciples, he originally was a disciple of John so he starts following Jesus. And Andrew, he goes and he gets his brother. He's his brother, Peter. Remember what he says to Peter? He says this in John chapter 1, verse 41. He says to his brother, Hey, Peter, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. This is at the very beginning. It's like, hey, we found the Messiah. So they thought that. Philip was there. Philip started following. Philip went and got his brother, who is Nathanael. And Nathanael was so blown away by Jesus that Nathanael confesses, in John chapter 1, verse 49, Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. This is like the early days. And if you want to hear about all 12, after Jesus walked on water, how did they all respond? Matthew 14, verse 33, it says, Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, "You are certainly God's son." So the point is that yes, the disciples have understood Jesus to be the Messiah, the son of God, the king of Israel from the beginning. They 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 had heard that, they had known that. Now that being quite the the case, you're probably wondering so then what's the big deal about Mark chapter 8? How is this such a pivotal confession if they've if they've said this before or thought this before? It sounds like nothing new. But not so fast. Because although the disciples had very early on thought that Jesus was the Messiah, they struggled with that belief. They really did. They struggled with the belief that Jesus really was the Messiah. And why is that? It's because they shared the exact same expectations of the Messiah as the rest of the Jews. They were fully hoping and expecting Jesus to at any moment overthrow Rome. and and, and bring in the kingdom. Any moment, it's going to happen. He's just going to take them out and bring back Israel's glory. But Jesus wasn't doing any of that. And as time went on, it became pretty clear he wasn't going to. And so they start wondering, is he really the Messiah? Doubt creeps into their minds. And furthermore, the disciples, they face this constant and mounting pressure of the world. Their own religious leaders, you know, the the Pharisees, the scribes, every time they encounter them, they're hating Jesus, they're opposing Jesus, they're like, there's no way you can be the Messiah. They're just speaking poorly of him all the time. And do you think that affects the disciples? Do you think that rubs off on them? Of course it does. That's why Jesus warned them to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And the leaven is doubt. And if left unchecked, it will spread into full-on unbelief. The disciples were susceptible to doubt. Even John the Baptist had his doubts. Do you remember this? John knew who Jesus was. But then John gets locked away in prison, and he starts wondering, like, his, what's going on? Is this part of the plan? Isn't the Messiah supposed to stop Roman oppression? Why am I in jail? I'm the forerunner. Well, what's going on? He, he's confused. And so John sends his disciples to Jesus with a question, recorded in Luke 7, verse 20. And they ask him, they say, Jesus, hey, are you the expected one or should we be looking for someone else? That's what they say. And John told them to say that. It's like, Jesus, what's going on? Are you really the guy? And if so, why is Rome still an issue? Why aren't we backing in power? What's going on? You see, Jesus did not fit anyone, anyone's preconceived notions of the Messiah. But the problem, of course, was with their preconceived notions. They were wrong. Their beliefs were not accurate. People had gotten so caught up in physical redemption of Israel that they overlooked the spiritual redemption of Israel. They got so caught up with the physical deliverance from Rome that they overlooked the more important spiritual deliverance from sin. But this was the culture. They all fell into this trap. So this is why it was very hard for anyone, including the disciples, to really believe Jesus is the Messiah. For the disciples to finally confess him at this point in Mark 8, to say, after all this, no, you you are the Christ. For them to say this, that's going against everything they were raised to believe and what everyone else is saying. You see that? It's cutting through everyone else's opinions. And that's why. This is a pivotal confession. For them to still say this at this point requires faith. And that makes this confession so important in Mark chapter 8. This is the point. Even though they had thought this before, but this is the point that they are formally, finally, and publicly cutting through all the doubt and declaring that despite the fact that Jesus isn't doing what they grew up thinking the Messiah was supposed to do, he is still the Christ. They don't know what he's up to. They don't know the plan. But they know him. They know his works. They know his his words. And they believe he is the Messiah. And they were right. It's a profound, pivotal confession. They are staking their claim as believers. They're essentially saying, forget what the world says. We know what they say. We don't care. We know you. And even though we don't get everything, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. We confess that. This is a remarkable faith, pushing through doubt, fear, and the influence of the world. And they were right. Now at this point, after such a landmark confession, where they got it right, they finally get it right with confidence, you would expect Jesus to be relieved. And maybe he would respond, guys, you finally got it right, You're, you're convinced, you're convicted. Great, now you can finally go tell everyone. Tell everyone, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, and just spread the word. So we, we expect that, but just the opposite happens. And we find lastly, number six in our passage, he finishes with a peculiar warning. It is very strange. Right after this confession of him as the Christ, it ends with a peculiar warning in verse 30. After Peter says this, he sa- and he, it says he warned them to tell no one about him. And people are always taken aback by this. The disciples just declared the identity of Jesus with confidence for the first time. So why on earth is he strictly forbidding them from telling anyone who he is? I mean, isn't that his whole mission? Isn't that why he came? But the problem is that although the twelve, they're finally understanding the identity of Jesus, the same can't be said of their understanding of his mission They believe he's the Messiah, but they're still clueless as to his real mission. They don't get it. He's going to tell them in the very next passage, which we'll see next week. He's going to tell them, hey, this is what I came to do. I came to die. But they they don't get that. That that can't be a dead Messiah. that, That doesn't make any sense. The fact that Jesus would be rejected, arrested, beaten, and then crucified by the religious leaders, like that can't be. There's no way that can be the Messiah's mission, but it is. And they don't get that. And until they get that, Jesus doesn't want them telling people he's the Messiah because they've got the wrong mission of the Messiah in mind. It's only going to flame and fuel further false expectations. So he tells them to keep quiet. Because of their misconceptions, everyone still harbors these misconceptions about the mission of the Messiah. And Jesus is going to set them straight. But the disciples won't be qualified to tell people that Jesus is the Christ until they fully get it. And that's not going to happen until when? After the resurrection. And speaking of the resurrection, you see, until that happens, there's no good news. Until the resurrection happens, the story of Jesus is bad news. It's just a dead Messiah. That's not good. But after the resurrection, that's when this story becomes the gospel. And that word means good news. Because after his resurrection and his atoning death, that's when he proves and certifies his victory over sin and Satan and death. And now, that's something you want to tell people about. That's that's worth sharing it's at that time that all restrictions on keeping quiet about Jesus are lifted. And to the contrary, after the resurrection, Jesus says, Okay, now go tell everyone. Now tell them that he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He came to earth to die, to pay the penalty for sins. But he rose from the dead. And now he offers eternal life. It's precisely that gospel message that we find the disciples preaching right after the resurrection in fact this is why the four Gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John that's why they were written to tell you now to, to let everyone know he's the Christ he's the Son of God you remember John chapter 20 verse 31 he says but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name that's why they're written And what you need to realize is that as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that you too are essentially being confronted with the same question that Jesus posed to his disciples. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he? Who do you make him out to be? And that's a question that today you still must consider. And you better get right. Because it really is the most important question you're going to face. It determines your eternity. Let's just real quick. I start off by surveying many different views of Jesus. And a lot of people wonder, okay, so this group over here, they don't think he's really God, or this group, they don't think he's really Messiah. What's the big deal? Why would that keep them out of heaven? What's the big deal about his identity? It's a fair question. But you have to realize, like, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John show us, the identity of Jesus is essential to salvation because his identity is intertwined with his mission. And his mission is intertwined with the gospel. If you don't get it right, you don't get the gospel right. And you can't be saved apart from the gospel. If Jesus is not the Christ and the Son of God, then no sufficient atonement for sins has been made. There's no redemption. And so you're left to save yourself. You've got to earn your way in. And by the way, it's no coincidence that every worldview, every single one, apart from biblical Christianity teaches salvation by works. You have to do this. You've got to earn your way in. And whatever they do think about Jesus, they certainly don't think he is the only way, truth, and life. He's not sufficient. You've need. You got to do something else here. Your efforts must contribute. But this contrast, it's like everyone over here and then biblical Christianity over here, the contrast shows you just how bankrupt those worldviews are only biblical Christianity understands that before God, there's nothing you can do. Your sin is a bigger problem than you might think before a holy and infinitely holy God. And there's only so many old ladies you can help cross the street. There's only so many good works you can do. But even at that, it's not enough to, to atone for your own sins. You can't do it. There's nothing you can do. There's a debt that's too large to be that you, for you to repay. But... That's why God sent Jesus in the first place, to pay on your behalf. Biblical Christianity is the only worldview that teaches salvation by grace alone. Grace alone. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't. But it's a gift given to you. And if you yourself, if you know the depths of your own sin, if you really do, then you know that's the only way. That has to be the way. Because What am am I going to do? I'm a sinner, and I keep sinning, and I can't pay for one even if I could. So what am I going to do? It's the only way. And the point is, such a complete and total redemption can only be purchased and provided by the Christ, the Son of God. He's the only one who can do it. This is a work that God himself must do. And if you don't think that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he is incapable of doing the one work you need him to do. And you are therefore left with no redemption, no substitute sacrifice. You're left dead in your sins. And that is why the identity of Jesus is essential to salvation. You get his identity wrong, you get his mission wrong, you get his mission wrong, you get the gospel wrong, and you can't be saved. So we're going to ask again, who, who do you say that Jesus is? Like the disciples, you may face some fear, even some doubt about that question. And you certainly will face the opinions of the world, which is all against that question. The world still vehemently denies and hates Christ. But what do you say? Will you confess him as Lord, as the only way, truth, and life? If you do, like Jesus responded to Peter, which you'll see next week, you're blessed he said to Peter, after this confession, you you are blessed because of this. And that is certainly the case. If you confess him in your heart of hearts, you believe and know him to be the Christ, the Son of God, you're blessed. Your sins have been forgiven. Your debt has been paid. You're brought near to God. You're redeemed. And eternal life awaits. If you know Jesus as the Christ, then even if nothing good ever happens to you again in life, ever again, you're still infinitely blessed. Because you have him. And to those who are his, he gives eternal life and blessing forever. So it's no understatement. This is the most important question you'll ever face. That Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? I can't make you see it. I can't make you believe it. Nor you to others. But we can testify with God's word that he is the Christ, son of God. He's the only way, of the truth, and the life, and that by believing, you can have life in His name. So consider for yourself, decide carefully. And for us who are convinced, let us thank Him and praise Him for our redemption as He makes us eternally blessed. Let's thank Him now. Let's pray together. <clears throat> our gracious Father in heaven, we thank You always. We do it every Sunday, and we're not going to stop. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus the Christ who came, lived, died for our sins, paid the ultimate price, and then rose again. And it is that resurrection, Lord, that makes this the gospel. Good news that a, a, a substitute has been provided, an answer has been provided. We are lost and dead in our own sins, and there is nothing we can do. The world in their hatred and rebellion towards you desperately grasps at straws, trying to find a way to keep their heads above the water, but it's so futile. Nothing can be done. No good work or religious right can, can save anyone. But you've provided the only means of escape, the only life raft in Christ. And we cling to him now. He's the rock, the redeemer, and we too confess him. Though some people may have some fears, even a little doubt, and though the mounting pressure of the world goes against him, I pray we all just take a stand firmly in our hearts and even publicly in the community that we believe he is the Christ, Son of God, He is the only way, and we, we stand in his corner. And for that, Lord, you bless us. We thank you for that. We are richly blessed in him. We worship. We celebrate that and worship you because of it. We pray we do that as we leave here. Just live lives of worship, celebrating and remembering the son given for us. We praise you, and it's all this in your name that we pray. Amen.